Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we speak with software engineer Alicia White about embedded programming, the mythical internet toaster, and the difficulties one encounters in building a solid technical team. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 77, Remote Host Toast, March 5th, 2015. So, Carmen, are you looking forward to having a smart toaster? If it lets me program what shape I'd like in my toast, you know, like Darth Vader or Fry from Futurama, then sure, yeah. But if all it's going to do is tweet at me when the toast pops, then I'm all set. I can skip that one. Right. Well, you know, it it wouldn't have to be too smart to uh, put Darth Vader on your toast every day. I was thinking maybe it would it would print out the uh, today's weather on your toast, or maybe the the best route to work. What if I use different size bread? Do the roads scale too? (laughs) (laughs) If it's a smart toaster, of course it would scale. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'm thinking too small. I was thinking like shape-shifting metal, but that doesn't necessarily have to be Internet of Things in order to change what I want to put on my toast. Well, I I keep reading that the Internet of Things is coming and that, uh, you know, when it does, our our lives will be just revolutionized and changed for the better. And uh, everything will be happy all the day long because we all network together. Every moment of the day. Until Windows Update decides your toaster has to reset and it hangs, <laughs> and then you start the house on fire. Right. You need some safeguards. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to talk about the Internet of Things this evening. Uh, before we get into the, that, though, I did want to put out the call again for engineers who might be willing to appear on the show. We have a software engineer with us this evening, but we're, we still haven't interviewed uh, several types of engineers. I don't believe we've had any chemical engineers on. Uh, materials engineers, industrial engineers, maintenance engineers. We even settle for someone who played it on TV. <laughs> not not someone who's an actual engineer, just someone who's played a role on TV. Is that, yeah, that yeah. good? Yeah, or stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, if, if you fall into any of those categories, you enjoy listening to the show, and uh, you think you'd like to uh, share some of your stories with us, uh, then uh, please contact us. We now have a contact page on the uh, the website, so you can go to theengineeringcommons.com and find a contact page and send us a note and express your interest, and we'd love to talk to you. So If you're from Holiday Inn Express, send the sponsorship checks. <laughs> that would work, too. All right, so th- as we kind of joked about, the Internet of Things is, is coming upon us, and there's lots of engineering decisions to be made, not just technical, but exactly what should this Internet of Things do and, and how does it affect our lives. And so to speak with us this evening about it, uh, our guest for this episode is software engineer Alicia White, co-founder of Logical Elegance, an embedded systems consulting firm located in San Jose, California. Alicia, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted that you can join us for this, this uh, episode. So Alicia, what got you interested in engineering? I think it's funny you were talking about all the different kinds of engineers. And uh, that was one of the things that kept me from engineering. My mom worked for the state. And when I said I wanted to be an engineer, she said, but the sanitation engineering isn't really a very good department to work for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to build things. And I didn't even know what the word was when I, you know, I, I had had physics, I had chemistry in, in high school, but I didn't 
engineers drove trains, right? <laughs> right. Or wore jumpsuits and came around to collect your garbage. Exactly. <laughs> or there were guys in Command and Conquer you sent in to take over buildings. That too. I guess I'm the only person who played Command and Conquer. <laughs> so you, you had this interest in making things, building things, but you didn't exactly know uh, what the, the field was called or what to be searching for. Uh, so how did you end up in a uh, in an engineering uh, school? Well, it, that was high school guidance counselors. Mm. Um, I said I wanted to build underwater cities. That was what I finally decided was Ooh. the thing. And I wanted to know what I had to do in order to get there. And I already was pretty good in marine biology sorts of things. And, and so they said, well, engineering is what you need. Right. And then I ended up in an engineering college where I discovered computer science is so much easier than engineering. <laughs> <laughs> um, but engineering had all the cool math. So I sort of did a, a individual program of study is what they call it, where I took all of the applied computer science classes, none of those theoretical things where you just learn things, you don't code. Right. And all of the theoretical engineering courses where I could spend as much time playing with Fourier as I wanted. Ooh, cool. Um, so signals and systems and all of those things. And that set me up actually to go into embedded systems because signal processing is where it's at. I mean, that's right. the thing you can do. I, I have this little speed. I worked on DNA scanners. I've worked on children's toys. I've worked on gunshot location system. But what that they all have in common is really cool Fourier and control systems. So when you were, uh, I don't want to say the phrase learning how to code because that's not what I mean. But since I can't find any other way to say it, you were learning how to code in a CS program. Was it directed at an embedded career or was it primarily at a more of a data centric uh, PC uh, career path? Uh, not PC units. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, I mean, but because um, it it seemed like a, a, probably around the time you were in school, uh, as I as I was, uh, not a lot of C, a lot more higher level uh, non embedded languages. I guess is the phrase I would use. And, and, and data, data and file structures, stuff like that. Well, those were the classes I avoided. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I did take some C, uh, there was some L ML and Pascal, but any of the project courses, you got to choose your own language and I chose C or Fortran. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, I've programmed Fortran on a Vax and I only barely missed using the, uh, punch cards to do so. <laughs> <laughs> do you still use Fortran quite a bit nowadays? No, I know a lot of people who do. A lot of the data scientists, uh, like the climatologists, all mm -hmm. of their libraries are written in Fortran. And how are they ever going to move from there to, I think Python would be the next logical step for them. But Is that just because of the way it's always done or is there a benefit to it? Well, when you're crunching that much data, that many numbers, you really want to use the libraries that are optimized. Well, True. you don't want to use Joe Schmoes, here's how you do a matrix multiplication. You want somebody who really thought about it. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. 
So yeah, even people who are working on, you know, massively paralleled systems are still using Fortran? The data scientists. Most computer scientists are not. Oh, um, okay. It's more the people who are in other fields who are using computers to do their fields, like physics. Okay, okay, gotcha. Like I don't know any computer science people who are, are commonly doing Fortran now. <laughs> So while you were in school, Alicia, were you able to, you talked about having some of the, uh, you know, Fourier transform classes and the math classes. Were you actively aiming yourself at a career in embedded software? I didn't even know what it was called. I mean, it was going back okay. to the whole engineering story. I, I knew what I was having fun with, but I had no idea what use it would be. Even PID controllers, we were taught more along the lines of, of electrical and not mechanical. So when I realized I could apply that to motors, it was so magical. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize that embedded software was a thing. I, I got a job uh, doing net servers uh, for HP. And so these were big mm -hmm. servers that people would connect to. And I was writing the low level software to ma monitor and maintain them. And I kept writing lower, lower level monitors until, um, until I got to go over to HP labs in the bioscience division and, and they, they captured me and they said, this is what you're going to do. And I said, that sounds like fun. And they said, okay, <laughs> we're going to stop calling you a software engineer and start calling you a firmware engineer. And I'm like, what's firmware? So, <laughs> I lucked into it. I, I was very fortunate that somebody saw that my skills and my desires aimed me towards something that I, I didn't even have the words for, but were just perfect for me. Well, terrific. Well, so you, you sort of uh, floated into embedded uh, software by happenstance then, and it, it looks like it was a great fit. So one of the things that always strikes me about uh, embedded systems is that you're, you're working, you know, so close down to the metal that I always assume that you have to be really, really knowledgeable about the hardware in order to be effective as a software programmer at that level. Is that true? Or, or are general software principles applicable no matter what scale you're working at? I think the more you know about the hardware, the better you are able to do an effective embedded system. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I have had people ask me, well, what is an embedded system? And when I say things like it's software for things that aren't computers, that's all well and good until they start saying, well, is my phone an embedded system? And I look at the mm -hmm. iPhone, I'm like, no. But plenty of people would argue with that. And, you know, where do you draw the line? For me, I think you need to know a lot about the hardware. I, I'm happier now that I know how to read a schematic. I'm, I can read data sheets. I do some software concept things. I, I know what classes are. I know how to do inheritance. And I use those principles in order to make my life easier on the low levels. But I also mm -hmm. read assembly because sometimes you need that tight loop to be fast. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it is good to know the hardware. Okay. I think it makes it harder to go into embedded systems, though, because hardware engineers, electrical engineers, by training, don't necessarily get a lot of software theory. And software right. engineers, by training, don't necessarily know what that little squiggly line on the schematic means. Right. So you're... You're always kind of halfway. Hmm. When you say uh, you need to, or 
it's helpful to know the hardware. Do you mean generally from an I.O. perspective, you know, what's a spy bus, what's a UART, or would you say the vendor kind of specific stuff as to how caching is handled? Ideally both. both. I mean, yeah. it's a, if, if I had all the time in the world, I would have all the knowledge in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I it, Somebody on Twitter asked about what Internet of Things projects they should work on and for their college class and I really couldn't help them. I mean, it's whatever you want to learn. But I think the more important thing to learn is the generalized stuff and the technology will change. But if you really understand the difference between I squared C and SPY, that's not going to change for a while. And if you understand Mm -hmm. the difference between serial and USB, that's still going to be around for a while. Cortex M3 versus Cortex M0 yeah, you do kind of need to know that, but maybe not as deeply, unless you're sponsored by ARM, in which case, of course, you need to know exactly everything about Cortexes. Exactly. I was kind of <laughs> the context of my question, because it, it seems like that can go really deep, and I sometimes find myself on tangents where I'm like, okay, if I, I know if I keep going down this rabbit hole, I'm going to spend the better part of a day in data sheets. And is this really going to help in the long run? Don't you wish you, you had the, like, rewind where you could go back and redo your day having taken a different path yes <laughs> if, if i guess and checked and found an and found an answer but didn't totally understand how it was working under the hood sometimes i feel like that's almost better than really doing a deep dive and losing myself in the mip spec you know i go back and forth i was just having a conversation with someone about arduino and whether or not it was really a great fantastic thing and uh, I don't, Arduino is the easy way to get to embedded systems. It's, it was designed for artists. It's very hide the details sort of thing. That's about at my level, if you want to call it that. <laughs> and I, if somebody comes up to me that I don't know and says, well, how can I get started in doing a robot or how can I control my lights? And my first answer is always Arduino. But when I start on the other side professionally, seeing people who have put their systems together using Arduino and Adafruit Lego blocks, you know, sensors. And then they got Mm -hmm. somebody to spin the board and all they need to do is finish the software a little bit. And I'm looking at this pile of spaghetti that has no reliability, (laughs) no path to getting it to be low power, no ability to do firmware update and thinking, I hate Arduino. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they've made it so easy and they've hidden all of the ways that you have to actually get down into it in order to make it good, in order to get it f- to be from a proof of concept to a production unit. They've, they've sort of glossed over that. And they make you feel very confident. Yes. Well, sometimes it makes me happy because these people come to me and are willing to pay me to help them out of this hole they've j- dug, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's now that I'm fully booked, I just wish they would all learn their lessons and go away. (laughs) (laughs) So, so the Arduino is helpful in getting to the proof of concept. I, I always have this thought that you want to try to, you know, prove out the prototype as quickly as you can. So from that aspect, it sounds like it's helpful. It's just they, uh, is it just that a lot of people don't understand how much work is required to get to a, from there to a commercial device? Well, that's part of it, but the the part that, and I think that's going to always be true, 
Mm-hmm. That's the whole, I have an idea, I have a proof of concept. Now, 90% of the work is left to be done. But Arduino yeah. makes, y- y- you push the buttons and you make the lights blink and it all, and it only takes two lines of code. So why should firmware update take 200? <laughs> right. Uh, we, could, we could probably get Sam Feller back on here and he could tell us why. Talking about his uh, clock there. <laughs> it is, it's. I like that it's easy, but then when you dig into PWMs in Arduino, you start realizing, oh my God, I'm on an 8-bit processor. What am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Who put this in my Arduino? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you kind of came into embedded systems from a, a computer science standpoint and worked your way down to the hardware. Do you find anybody going the other way, you know, starting off? designing hardware and PCBs and then working their way to the embedded systems? I think you should ask Brian that. (laughs) Well, well, this interview is for you. We can interview Brian any day. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of electrical engineers move the other way. And they face a different set of problems. Mm -hmm. But they also Mm -hmm. bring more to the table, too. Or different areas, not more. Yes, yes, different. Wrong choice of words there. You have not seen the atrocious code that electrical engineers have put on processors. Ooh, I, I, I can pull up some of my old computer files, uh, code files from school, and show you some atrocious code. Or atrocious code. <laughs> <laughs> I take pride in my brute force attempt to pull a keyboard. <laughs> 10,000 lines of code in one comment. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> It was, I didn't realize that was in the spec and I have to get it checked off by the TA in 20 minutes. So copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. (laughs) So is there any typical background for an embedded systems programmer? It's either usually CS or embedded, or or, I'm sorry, electrical engineering or CS. And then throughout the career you merge. Um, now programs are doing more computer engineering, which sometimes is the right thing. Uh, you stole um, my question. But <laughs> if I'm interviewing, like if I go to a college and interview for a company, my question is, are, were you in the robotics club? That is the best place to find people who understand the hardware and software meet and then control something mechanical. Okay. So if somebody goes to school, they get a CS degree, and this you know it's computer science and it's programming. But it seems to me that what's skillful at one one scale, if you're doing you know SQL programming, that's different than what you're doing at the embedded level. So what what differentiates an embedded programmer for other from other types of software engineers? Well, you know they talk about full stack software engineers now, which are the people who can do all of it. And that's what mm-hmm. they would like us to believe they're graduating from college. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you don't really understand it all at that point. And no matter what you do, whether it's Linux internals or database backends or really beautiful web frontends or embedded systems, some specialization is required. And the more specialized you get, the faster some of these things get and the better they get. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I can't program in SQL. I can. I'm actually pretty good at it, but I'm not as good as any SQL programmer. 
but I'm definitely better than, you know, Joe Schmo off the street. <laughs> right. And coming out of school with a CS degree, you have all of these slots where you can put information. Like, here's how you go about optimizing something. Here's how you go about designing an interface. Here's what these three languages mean and why you use one or another. And so as you get into a career, whether you go into embedded or you go into something more high level, you still have those slots. Now, maybe, maybe one, maybe the atrophy, you know, you're doing big web pages that are lovely. Maybe optimization's not key until somebody says, mm -hmm. oh, but we need a mobile web page or web interface. Right. And so a CS degree, sometimes you, sometimes you end up with programmers. And to me, programming is a lot like typing. It's a necessary skill, but it is not actually a big part of my job. A big part of my job is looking at the okay. system and figuring out the most efficient solution, the smallest number of lines of code that I can do this in that will make it easier for somebody else to come in and take it over. We almost need a new verb. Everyone picked up on programming. Yeah. And nobody really likes software engineering because it sounds so stiffy. Yeah. Hmm. And hacking means something else. And architecture just annoys all of the architects in the world. <laughs> uh, we can we can do that though. That's <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm I'm curious then if uh, since you I'm sure you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of engineers uh, during your career. Uh, you know, I hear it said that doctors are the worst patients because they think they know what's best for them. And I'm wondering if. Engineers are the worst clients because they think they know how the software should be written. Uh, some of my favorite clients have been people who have said, I have this idea and this bucket of cash. Can you make these work? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I have worked very successfully with some smart engineers and I have left jobs thinking, wow, you say you could do it in an afternoon. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. All right. Well, so we we started off the uh, the introduction with a, uh, a mention of the Internet of Things, and so maybe we can dive into that. Can you give us just a brief outline, I guess, of of how you interpret Alicia, the Internet of Things? Uh, well, usually this is when I start making fun of that phrase. <laughs> okay. Well, you're you're welcome to say I don't like the phrase, or I think it's a bunch of malarkey. Well, it's tough. Um, we started out with M two M, which is machine to mean machine communications. And that mm -hmm. now is mostly thought of as something that happens on factory floors or in large factory sorts of environments. And it's just, you know, this widget talks to that widget in order to give it status, whether it does it over right. Zigbee or Bluetooth or Ethernet or whatever, it doesn't matter. And now we have the Internet of Things, which some people think that that is exactly the same. It's still almost entirely in the realm of industrial use. But when I think of the Internet of Things or Cisco's phrase, the Internet of Everything, or whatever these new right. catchphrases are, I think about how that machine-to-machine -machine communication is going to change consumers' lives. And... Mm -hmm. While I still don't like the phrase, I'm starting to get into the, you can have sensors to tell you how to be 
a better driver or a more healthy human being. You can have widgets that will tell you that your traffic's bad if you go the normal route or to wait 15 minutes and you'll not hit the rain shower. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of like them, um, although I hate when they fail. And I think that goes back to being the engineers being the worst patients is because I can look at a device and think, I know what just happened and it was annoying. <laughs> Particularly when mm-hmm. firmware updates like clear your uh, Wi-Fi password and your device stops working. Mm, that sort of right. thing makes me really crazy. This engineer had any brains. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we had some fire alarms that I won't say the name of, but seriously, you know who they are. And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to really have a nice long discussion with their firmware team, mostly involving throwing like ice cubes at them or something. <laughs> I have one recently where my uh, the center console on my car, and I won't name the vendor, Whenever there's a firmware update, will literally freeze while you're driving for about ten minutes, and you cannot change the volume on the stereo. Can't turn it off. Can't do any <laughs> climate control. It just goes, just freezes. Nice. Better hope you get pulled over then. Yeah. <laughs> Could you please turn down the stereo? No. <laughs> no. That, that's Volvo's fault or whoever Ford's fault. Write <laughs> them the ticket. They'll pay it. I'm not saying. <laughs> On the other hand, having the car tell you what, where it is on your phone is kind of nice. You don't lose it, it in the parking lot anymore. That's true. And being able to unlock my, my door is pretty cool for all those times that locking things in had bad consequences. Yeah. Or having your car know where you are isn't bad either. What is it, the, the new Tesla, that if you're on private property, you can have it drive to you? The software isn't doesn't exist yet. I Not mean, yet, but it's coming, isn't it? Well, I am totally a fangirl of Mr. Musk. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody's a bit of a fanboy or girl for Mr. Musk right now. It, that software uh, does not currently exist and probably won't for a little while. No. I think my article was a little uh, sensationalist then. We, it was optimistic. They were showing it off on closed courses. Yeah. But they are not releasing it to Tesla owners yet. True. But they did release that uh, creep feature, which is pretty cool. When you take your foot off the brake or the gas, the brake, yeah, and it inches forward like a, a internal combustion engine. That, that it's that's been a feature in the car for all, always. You just have to switch modes. Oh, is it? I thought originally it wasn't, but they just sent out a firmware update. Um, a couple people. Well, complained. I guess this is the point where I say I've had a Tesla for two years now. Oh, okay. Well, you you would know better than I would. Now I'll, I'll just defer to you and be jealous over here in the corner of the podcast. I'm within spitting distance of the Tesla dealership, and it's all I can do not to schedule a test drive. Oh, you should. Yeah, you but I have no intention of buying ones. one, though. So? Uh, the new ones, they have not only – they have this feature where you just say, I want to follow the car in front of me. And you still have to steer, although they say they're going to take that away, too. But it, you don't have to like do your feet, you know. The the car just slows down, speeds up in traffic. We get a test drive of one of those, and I'm that's so pretty jealous. cool. Except I, I got a manual car, so I'd be really bored. I wouldn't know what to do with my feet. <laughs> <laughs> I do spend more time singing along in the car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can you can add the <laughs> kick drum to when you start air drumming. <laughs> So you're already starting to see in the aerospace industry, like uh, when you super heavily automate things, 
that were once extremely complex that when the automated systems click off, people just kind of panic and bad things happen. Do you think we're heading towards that with car where you're driving down the road, you know, the car is minding the gap between the car in front of you doing automatic controls and then it clicks off and people, you know, it's not just the reaction time of hitting the brakes. It's, oh my gosh, the automated system clicked out. Yeah. Autopilot ended. Is the car doing something yeah. funny or do I have to take over here? Yeah. Well, there have been a, a lot of the National Transportation Board with the airlines are having that problem that when autopilot goes off, because there's an error, people do exactly the wrong thing because they just aren't, they get so freaked out. Yeah. And um, I guess, yeah, maybe. But on the whole, I would rather have the machines driving than the humans. I think. Oh, I would agree. It would I mean, be so much safer that even. Even if the cars, you know, do experience glitches and they do click off and humans do crazy things, the humans are doing such crazy things now. I'm, I'm all for a robot overlords. <laughs> I, won't, I won't raise my blood pressure, but I agree. <laughs> Don't get me started. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. About cars? The people that drive them. What yeah. I see on my day to work in the commute. Y yes, humans do crazy things, especially behind the wheel of a car. Drive, drive a motorcycle. You will take that opinion to the next level. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I think if you drive a motorcycle, you have to assume that they are all actively out to get you. Yes. And drive yes, that. Yes, you are all trying to murder me. Yes. <laughs> So, so Alicia, are, are people really trying to make uh, an Internet of Things toaster, or is that just kind of hyperbole that uh, people who aren't really for it kind of spout? Oh, it has to exist, doesn't it? I, I'm, I'm typing it into Google now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, other, well, other than the Hackaday posts of the guy who, where does Arduino in? Um, did you see any on that uh, Hackaday prize you were a judge for? No. No, no, no toasters. Since it, space, since it was space related, I think that they didn't show me the toasters. Oh, they don't like breakfast in space? <laughs> Not as much as like, you know, spectrometers and PCR machines. and People made really, really neat oh. things. Oh, yeah. I, I remember scanning those product pages. That was pretty cool seeing what everybody did. There is one needy robotic toaster that sells itself if you don't use it enough. <laughs> toaster sells itself. <laughs> Post a Craigslist ad. Exactly. That's really funny. <laughs> I don't know that there are really internet toasters yet. It wouldn't shock me if they put a little screen and put information there. I mean, you're standing there doing nothing else. Mm -hmm. I think they need to make cheapo make toast. I, you know, toasters they break so often for me. It wouldn't be something I'd want to have on the internet. <laughs> um, really, I think I've. I don't think I've ever broken a toaster. See, yours probably would be neglected and, and sell itself on the street. Oh, no, I, I use it. I use it quite a bit. It doesn't have to be free to a good home. <laughs> um, but they do have those egg uh, widgets where, where they, you put you, you take your eggs that you get at the grocery store and then you put them into the little holder and it's Wi-Fi and you can, from the grocery store, ask your refrigerator if it's got any eggs in it or how many it's got. And that is an Internet of Things uh, widget that I have perhaps made fun of, yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> that just sounds like you're too lazy to look in your fridge before you go to the store. On the one hand, I can understand, you know, sometimes if everything was like that, it would make its own shopping list. On the other hand, don't we have more serious problems to solve in this world? Exactly. <laughs> Gene sequencing or egg content? Yeah, maybe, maybe they're what? too related. And, you know, you got to do the stepping stone of getting the eggs on the Internet before the genes. So what's been the enabling technology uh, with respect to either the existing Internet of Things or the growing Internet of Things? Is it device side? Is it the chip vendors or is it more server side stuff? I think it's device side. I think it's cost as, as really? microprocessors come down in cost and sensors come down in cost. Um, that it just, and the radio transceivers now there's, you have, you know, so many different options that if you can get people to buy into your whole ecosystem, you can put them on your own 2.4 gigahertz sort of network. And now they're locked into your lights and your, toaster <laughs> i'm thinking that xkcd comic about standards <laughs> yes, yes exactly. there are now 15 standards <laughs> i mean has it gotten a lot easier to do things like wi-fi connectivity i mean I, I remember it basically being like a moonshot kind of project at a company i know uh, i what's that yeah. what's that one chris talks about all the time on the amp hour um oh uh Starts with an I, doesn't it? Uh, electric Imp. Yes, yeah. there we go. Electric Imp. So Electric Imp is sort of like Arduino in that it is a great, great place to get started. And for some people, that they're going into production with it. And um, that's good. It's it's a neat platform. You You use your phone to give it your Wi-Fi and password. Working on Internet of Things devices for Wi-Fi the largest number of returns are people who don't know their Wi-Fi password. <laughs> I've worked on a couple now, and I'm not kidding. The The support costs of helping people look up their Wi-Fi password and type in their 45-character random number that they got from Comcast when he installed it four years ago and wrote it on a piece of paper that's gotten water on it a few times, that is the most difficult part. Even as they're making chips that now have multiple uh, transceivers or can use USB to help you uh, configure them, it is still the barrier of, of how do you get your Wi-Fi password onto the widget. And ElectroCamp mm -hmm. does that by using your smartphone and blinking lights at it in Morse code-like fashion. Hmm. Which is kind of cool if you have a smartphone... And I guess most people who can buy egg monitoring gear <laughs> probably have smartphones. But it seems like a limitation. And you still have to know your Wi-Fi password. Although in that case, your phone has to know your Wi-Fi password. And maybe it already does. So that was what I was going to ask. It's, it's actually cloning the credentials and giving it to the device. So, you know, you set up your phone on your Wi-Fi two years ago doesn't matter if you know the password? Uh, that is the theory. That has never worked for me on Electric Imp. Um, okay. But that is the theory. I'm sure it probably works for people who 
don't have 97 Wi-Fi's in their house and want to connect to all of them all the time. <laughs> I find it's just easier to make your Wi-Fi password taglines from podcasts, and then you'll just never forget. <laughs> I, I yeah, our Wi-Fi password is uh, is a common internet phrase with only a few modifications, and it's you know 25 characters, and I can actually remember it. Um, I don't understand why they're still doing the weird combination of numbers and letters that don't make sense to people. <laughs> um, so Electric Imp is a great place to get started. If you're thinking, you know, what I want is a, is to be able to get to know if my garage door is up and you're an engineer, buy an Electric Imp, buy a sensor, you're done. It's like super easy. <laughs> um, but if you want to go into production with that, that's a little harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine supply chain issues trying to stock up on electric imps and whatever sensor you're just, you know, Lego bricking in, like you said before. And electric imp, you have to register your device with your account. Except oh, now, right. it, and your account has your software, which as an engineer, as a, you know, doing stuff yourself, it's fine. You're you're you, but as a, a product person, you're going to have to buy a block of electric imps and get them wired to your software accounts. And they have a plan. They, they're working hard. They have people doing it. I, I wish them the best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Hats off to them. So it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done in order to make, you know, to make entry into consumer class products for IoT more reasonable. Well, one of the things people have done have gone has been go to Bluetooth Low Energy, um, because or or Bluetooth. Although Apple has kind of screwed over everybody who went to Bluetooth, but let's not talk too much about that. Bluetooth Low Energy, <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know that's what your Fitbits are using, all your little smart devices, anything wearable. Um, the, the distance is pretty good, you know, 50 meters, unless you have to go through walls, in which case like five meters. But, and, and it's got good low energy profile and it's a little easier to pair things unless you've got a whole bunch of them. But if you are in the position where you don't have a, a display on your device, pairing becomes hard. And if you do have a bunch of them, it becomes difficult because you had, how do you tell which is which? There isn't, a, a magic bullet and you know a lot of people are making these gateways that have their own magical system and they're trying to sell that as being better from a privacy perspective or better from a security perspective because you're not on wi-fi people can't come by and sniff your packets they can't look at your bluetooth traffic to try to figure out if you're home um but anybody who is sufficiently skilled in the arts here is not going to be faked out by your build-it-yourself 2.4 gigahertz radio system. It's just not that different. There are only a few ways to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I get more annoyed by the people making the gateways and saying that they're so much better. What they are is more expensive. Unless you don't have a smartphone, in which case the gateway starts to make sense, and there just isn't a good solution yet. So how do how do you evaluate the trade off here between the uh, you know the benefits that may um, 
come from this internet of things against the concerns that people have, like you mentioned about privacy, security, cost, software updates, that kind of thing. Um, so how do you evaluate it? And, and those who are in the business of making this, these devices, how do, how do they see this issue? Like, how do you choose which of the options or how do you decide if you want to do internet of things at all? Probably the latter. Well, yeah, let's go big picture first. I mean, those fire alarms, if they, they did in fact text us when they thought there was a fire in our house, which was kind of cool. It was cool to be able to call our neighbors and say, oh my God, is my house on fire? And our neighbors thought that was sort of cool too. Of course, it wasn't, so demerits all around there. That's even cooler. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad our house didn't burn down, but it was a pretty tense 20 minutes while we got home after the text. (laughs) Um, it, It is getting so, I mean, all these things are so neat. And when they work, they will eventually work. When they work, they they're just awesome. I mean, my Fitbit tells me when I haven't walked enough. Sure, I could get a usual pedometer to do that, but my Fitbit also sends me cute emails like, "If you only walk another three hundred steps today, you can have circled the coast of Florida this month." And I have to admit that that's a good motivator. It's amusing and, and not too intrusive. Um, when you look at like sports gear, I do a lot of MEM sensors and inertial sensors because that was one of my early jobs, and I I just really like them. But when you look at what you can do in a helmet to save kids' lives, to to stop making it so that they look at concussions with lights, and instead the helmet turns red and says, no, this kid may not play anymore today. That sort of thing, you stop stop looking at it as a game and start looking at it like, wow, this can really change things. I, 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 you know, we haven't mentioned it, but I do have my podcast and it's the show for people who love building gadgets. And that's, it Mm -hmm. used to be the show for people who love gadgets because realistically, I love the engineering and stuff, but I also really like all the little gadgets. I like looking at the children's toys and figuring out just how cheaply they could have done that. And, and could they have made it more educational if they'd done this? And I'm shot spotter with the gunshot location system. The idea that my code's out there, like fighting crime while I sleep at night, I'm good with that. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I really like the sleep. Um, so I, the balance of should we be doing all of this? I have privacy issues with it. I worry about the security. And I certainly am willing to talk about how it's not quite ready for the average consumer. But for engineers who are willing to like spend a little money and try it out, there's some pretty neat things out there. Okay, I'm done ranting. I'm sorry. <laughs> we encourage such things. Be- because as in all engineering decisions, you know, it's, it's – uh, so if you're building a bridge, you have to decide – you've got pressures on one side to lower cost. Uh, and to uh, decrease the amount of maintenance required, yet you still have the primary concern of making sure the traffic can can safely uh, traverse the bridge. And so uh, in the Internet of Things, again, the engineer, uh, you in this case, uh, and those that you work with have the the uh, duty to try to uh, make it as, as convenient and as uh, wonderful and as magical as you possibly can 
while at the same time you address some of these other issues, trying to make sure that that people can uh, use the device safely. And if, if you hit one of those edge cases, that somebody isn't going to get hurt. Yeah. And, and to make sure that someone who uh, guards their privacy isn't having their data exposed. And to make sure that when its batteries do fail, that there is a reasonable fail safe and not fail mm-hmm. stupid sort of thing. Yeah, and that that has that's where you sit down and you think, okay, so is Wi-Fi better than Bluetooth? And what are your cost trade-offs? And what are our other options? Mm-hmm. And and so, how did the uh, conversations about these edge cases normally go? Uh, <laughs> Find them in the field once it's deployed. <laughs> uh, well, th- there are two ways they go. Um, the first is something about me breaks hardware. Um, my my husband, who's also a <laughs> software engineer, has asked me to leave the room so that his devices can work. Um, I think this is an advantage. If something's going to break, it's going to break near me. But right. overall, it does make things a little more frustrating, and I do hit those edge cases earlier than most people see. Um, okay. But... Working, no, you have a back. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Working working with customers, bringing to them a list of these are the common problems and these are the common solutions and here's how your product fits in here or doesn't. That's experience and getting used to all the options, learning about what's out there. Mm-hmm. But it's also easing them into the idea that not everybody wants their steps broadcast in clear text to all of their neighbors that somebody somewhere is going to have a big problem with that. And somebody else is going to have a huge problem with you putting up their location on your server, even though you anonymize it so that other people can't see it. Hackers, the bad people, the black hats, can track someone if you do this in the wrong way. And getting them to understand how they're how they may not personally have these privacy issues and fears and desires, but other people do, that's a very delicate, long conversation. You start with, well, what about these things? What do you think? And then a week later, what about those things? What do you think? And hope that they kind of find it on their own. It's so much easier that way. Right. Right. Well, and and certainly it's the case where we as a society are sort of trying to learn how to deal with all this. You look at all the... uh, all the large corporations, let's say, that have had recent troubles with their their uh, uh, their computer information being hacked into or or uh, customer information being released, and what you know what five years ago was uh, you'd hear about it every couple of months. It seems like it's an almost a daily occurrence now that you hear about some you know some company, some product, something having uh, having trouble or leaking information it shouldn't be leaking. So. This is certainly not limited to just uh, devices that we would consider the Internet of Things. Or or what could have been with uh, the whole Lenovo scandal just this week with the Superfish. Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, Alicia, uh, you know, many, many people might not know this, but you uh, you have a background in aerospace and writing software in a DO-178B uh, regime. Did you get that off your alphabet soup? No. I... <laughs> I'm very familiar with DL1. Well, I wouldn't say I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the software engineers who have worked under DL178B. What What is that, Brian? <laughs> I'll let the uh, expert describe <laughs> it. Um, DL178B is the uh, 
is a description of how the FAA wants you to write software. And I actually started with the FDA software. So when I went to go work on airplane components, uh, it wasn't as bad as if I had gotten that first off because I had already done some medical stuff. <laughs> so you were like, wow, all this freedom and everyone else is looking at you funny? Well, no, because with the medical gear I was working on, it was non-invasive and unlikely to kill you. And any air gotcha. airplane, anything that's critical to an airplane's function is not only able to kill the people on the plane, it's able to kill people on the ground. And they take that into consideration when they give you a level. Um, it's sort of terrifying that they will say, well, you're DO-178B because you can only kill 20 people at a time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... That's an interesting guy on that standards board. That, I mean, that wasn't what they said exactly, but once you filtered <laughs> it all down and why this and that, and it came down to, well, your liability is this. And mm -hmm. yeah, someone's got to make FDA that call. FDA does the same thing. Uh, you have to figure out, you know, how likely are you to kill a person? How many people are you likely to kill? And what are the chances they would have died anyway? And, you know, this whole calculus of human cost is horrifying, especially, I mean, it wasn't something I was ever used to. I'm kind of glad not to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and that's that's kind of why I bring it up, because you, I think in the software, in the software realm, you're taught early on how malleable things are. And there's, you know, I hate to say this, but sometimes for some people, there's not a big difference between the prototype and the final product. And, you know, you talk to people who have worked in that kind of area and they really treat software differently and those edge cases differently. Do you feel like as gadgets get interwo get woven into our life the way we're kind of expecting that, you know, software engineers and embedded engineers are going to have to adopt mo almost more of the DO-178B attitude? I wish. I wish that, that <laughs> we would see more of that i hope that some of the uh higher level software the test driven development pushes more into embedded software but not this year no <laughs> you don't think it's going to happen this no, year <laughs> I, I think there are going to be some more horror stories before it gets better i mean uh, there's a there's one floating horror story about uh, the baby camera that had the microphone so you could talk back to your baby. You know, you're at work and you can say, hi, yep. and the baby can see you and, and hear you. And and it got hacked because it was a, a pretty straightforward Wi-Fi implementation. And you, this guy came home to find somebody saying horrible cursing at his baby. And yet that's mm. horrible on one hand. You know, that's... Who does that? Who who really yeah. does that? <laughs> so someone someone actively thought that was a good idea. Like, this, this is what I want to do with my afternoon. Well, we're all stupid at some time in our lives. <laughs> I, don't, I, well, hope I, I mean, that's a little more than just stupid. stupid. <laughs> that's a special stupid. And yet, nobody got hurt there, so nobody's going to sue, at least not very much. I don't know if that went to litigation. Yeah. <laughs> and if if some no-name Fitbit-like thing loses all their data and 
tells people where all their users were or whatever. That's arguably something you could find out if you hired a thousand PIs. It's... Mm -hmm. But if, if your garage door gets hacked and comes down on your pet or your child... It's a totally different story. Or it story. stays open and you get robbed. That too. And who is the, who is at fault there? Is it the programmer? Is it the device developer? Is it the QA manager? Is it the homeowner? Because they bought it. I mean, if, if you ran over your foot with lawnmower, you wouldn't sue the lawnmower company. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's it, there was a, a thing where a Twitter bot threat somebody who had made a, a Twitter bot based on somebody else's code, and it was just a standard Twitter bot, and it had threatened someone uh, physical harm, <laughs> and the police came to his house, and and he was fairly terrified, and said, and he took it down, but he explained it was just a robot; he didn't control it; it was taking random things and putting them together. And then when they found out who it had threatened, it was another Twitter bot. <laughs> so, yeah, who's who's to blame there? Is it the original person who thought of Twitter bots? Is it the original person who wrote this style? Is it the person who was controlling it? Is it except he wasn't really controlling it? He just kind of said, "Here's a dictionary, go look at it." Is it the person who overreacted because their Twitter bot was threatened by some other Twitter bot? Is it, is it the person who put those, the dictionary together to allow those phrases to form? It's hard to pinpoint yes. liability. And without that, you can't prove neglect. And so I think, I think things will get worse before they get better in the security, privacy, reliability realm. Um, although I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to fight that fight. <laughs> well, so, sort of speaking in that area, then we, we've covered sort of the big picture. Is the Internet of Things worth doing? Uh, so, from a a more uh, you know device level, so if you're tasked with getting somebody logged into a system that you've designed, and you've you've talked earlier about the difficulty of that, what kind of things are you doing as an engineer trying to make that process go more smoothly? Choosing the right thing for the right device, choosing the right protocol for the right device is part of it. Um, mm -hmm. Choosing one that has a good uh, install base because p they're already training people how to use their processes. Um, for example, a lot of the Wi-Fi devices, you, you switch your computer so that it searches and then you log on to their Wi-Fi, that it's... It's acting mm -hmm. as a, an access point, like just like your router is. Right. When you log into it, you type in your password, you, uh, and then it reboots, and it goes out and tries to use that password on whatever it finds, on its Wi-Fi. It, it becomes not an access point, it becomes a child. And mm -hmm. that process is becoming more common. It's still very clunky. But there are some... You know, Broadcom has their their system, and they're sort of getting more users used to doing that, and it isn't as traumatic as it was the first five times. Bluetooth devices and iPhones are really getting together and trying to make this process much easier. So that helps. 
I also <laughs> really want my clients to sit down and talk about not how is this device being used, but how is this device being opened? And having that conversation helps a lot. People get so involved in they want their widget to do X, Y, and Z. And they get so excited about that part because that's the cool part to them. Right. And they don't really sit down and think, okay, how what's going to happen the first day somebody gets this? And how can I make it be as painless as possible? And I think that's what needs to happen. Whether it's a document that has cute kittens in it so that people actually manage to look at most of it, or something <laughs> that makes it easier. And unfortunately, I do think right. most of these still, they still require documents, which is sad. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of software that doesn't require documents. Well, I, I'm confused. What type of documents are you saying that software requires? Well, when you're, when you're setting up a, a Bluetooth device or a Wi-Fi device, you need at least a quick start. You need the one Getting pager. started guide. Oh, yes. I would okay. like to abolish that too. Right. I mean, it's better than the twenty-page right. manual, but <laughs> right. Well, it, it, but but we were talking earlier about the the uh, the toaster as an example, and uh, you know the old-fashioned toaster that uh, we've used for many years. That pretty much anybody they they do send user manuals with those, but pretty much you just plug it in and press the button. You know, that's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, it, it doesn't require the uh, the sixty-four character password, as you said earlier. And it doesn't tell you that today you really need to use a different freeway. Right. And it doesn't let you put in the toast the night before and wake up to already toasted golden bread. I I don't know why you would Internet of Things a toaster. <laughs> it's actually when it, I, I have sometimes when I work on client stuff and I can't talk about what I'm doing. I can only talk about generalities. Like right now I'm working on a Bluetooth device but I can't really tell right. you exactly what it's for. And so yeah. I, I, I have told people, yeah, I'm essentially working on a, on a Wi-Fi fishbowl or a Bluetooth low energy toaster because I, I, it is one of those things that I just can't imagine doing that with. <laughs> of course, I would never have thought of the egg monitor either. Right. Right. So as, as you go through this process of trying to make these decisions and, and uh, trying to be concerned about the, the consumer, the customer that's using this device, uh, you, you've uh, mentioned in the past that it was important to have a skilled team that cared about users. So how do you go about telling whether an engineer will be empathetic to a customer's frustrations? I, from an interviewing perspective? Yeah. Or even if you've got somebody on board for, I always claim that it takes at least six months to a year before you really know how somebody's going to behave. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody can put on a front when you're at the interview, and they can be on good behavior for a while, but sooner or later the guard kind of comes down, and you find out who you've got. And I, I claim that's why interviewing is such a hit or miss process because everybody has their guards up uh, and is on their best behavior during the interview, and it's not until much later that you, you discover what that person is all about. Well, and it goes the other way, too. People may be on their best behavior, but so freaking nervous that they're doing the worst possible thing. I, I right. agree. Interviews are tough. Yeah. Um, so so whether, whether you're talking to a person that you're interviewing or you've, even if you've got somebody on staff for a while, 
I, I, so we have a sense, I guess we get a sense of feel of whether somebody is uh, empathetic and caring or not, and we we rely on that inner sense. Is, is there anything else we can do? I don't know. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of engineers I've worked with who I thought really didn't care about the customer and did they ever change and how did they change? Mm-hmm. Getting them to sit down and do the new customer uh, flow chart. I always think of flow charts sort of as punishment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> having to draw a flow chart. And for me, that doesn't mean, you know, having to do it in a nice program, just having pen and paper sort of flow chart is the is one way I try to get people to think about what they've just said to me. Okay. <laughs> because it usually doesn't work out. And so, yeah, I've had people flowchart that initial process to try to get them to understand what exactly the customer was doing and then walk through it. And when they notice there are 60 boxes with lines going everywhere, they clue in themselves. And I, that's a much better learning experience for everybody. Okay. I know that there are some uh, trends happening with more empathetic development. Um, I had a I had a guest on the show that was talking about empathy driven development to go along with test driven development, mm-hmm. where it was thinking not only about your users but also about the guy who comes after you, who may be you in six months after you've forgotten all this stuff. Right. Um, and so, trying to be nice, recognizing that as an engineer, often you just want to get it done. You want to go on to the next shiny neat thing, but what if what if we could also be a little nicer and wouldn't that be cool? I think that's a hard sell, but I'm sort of buying it myself, so I'm trying to sell it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's assume that you have uh, gathered your your empathetic team uh, that cares about your users, and you're you're developing a device, and and you specifically as an embedded developer are working down at the uh, the you know the microprocessor level. Can you give us kind of a brief overview of the various uh, types of software engineers that might be involved in, in creating a, a structure, an ecosystem for an embedded device? Yes, yes. And it can be a lot. Okay. And I think actually ShotSpotter is the best example of this. There were those of us at the very low level. So, so um, quickly, could you give us a, just what is ShotSpotter? Oh, ShotSpotter is a gunshot location system. You sprinkle sensors around a city, and they sit there, internet of thinging, mm-hmm. um, until a gunshot is fired. And gunshots are very loud, and they have other very specific characteristics. And so these sensors get together and send their data to the server, and then the server can decide this is a gunshot and notify the police. And it notifies the police there was a gunshot at this location. And locations are really good because we're talking about lots of GPS averaging and just really good, solid data for the officers. Mm -hmm. And it's great for um, not only there was one gunshot or there was celebratory gunfire on like 4th of July where the officers may not come and like find the people. They'll just put on little door signs that say, did you hear anything? And everybody says no, but next year there's a lot less. So that's good. But there's also situations where the officers may go into multiple shooters. And knowing where they are is 
critical to safety. Right. And so, yeah. So uh, there were those of us at the low level. I usually did the signal processing. Another guy was often did more of the upper level communications layers. Mm-hmm. But we traded back and forth. So that wasn't a hard barrier. And then we had uh, different ways of communicating cell phone and Wi-Fi. And then on the other end, there was the uh, LabVIEW program to pick up all of the pulse information, put it in a database, which is how I learned SQL. And then it would take that data and triangulate the shooter position. Right. And also look to see if this was a gunshot or was this a basketball or a firework or other things that can set the system off, but you don't want to tell the police because then they just get annoyed at you. Right. Um, so it would uh, database and then uh, the pretty heavy duty math that goes into both the triangulation and the natural learning algorithms that go along with telling, is this a machine gun or is this a helicopter? Because from a software perspective at the very low level, it's kind of hard to tell the difference, strangely. Um, and then, so the the mathy bit, I'm showing you with my hands. You, you can see this, right? <laughs> um, and then on top of that, there was the interface. Because why in the world should police officer dispatchers understand the low levels of the software? It had to be, you know, here is a red dot on a map. Right. Do you want to listen to it? Okay, here are <laughs> 10 red dots on a map, and they're all at this location. We really think it's important. Let's not only make it red, let's make it flashy. Um, and then, okay, so that's that's what the whole one unit looks like. Now, if you go to places like Washington, D.C., they may have multiple coverage areas and multiple units. Mm-hmm. And if you go across the U.S., where there's like 50 covered cities, you have a lot of data, and it all goes Back. I mean, a lot of it's local to them, but right. ShotSpotter would often be able to look at incidents. Like one of the reasons I left there is because I was tired of being somebody that was called when there was a homicide in Washington D.C. I just didn't want to be on the list. Right. So uh, <laughs> they often would want, you know, can you pull out any more information? Can you hear anything else that might have happened nearby? Are you sure this is a gunshot? Were there two shooters? Who shot first? Um, and so there was this oversight of, are all of the systems functioning? Are all of the systems doing well? Are all of the sensors under all of the systems okay? And by the way, now we have a firmware push, and we need to push it out to all of the sensors. Although we really want to do it once at a time. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of software there. And you know, my part, it's just at this little bottom piece. There were a lot of pieces in there. So how in the world do you piece together a team that has all these uh, differing skills? One piece at a time. You find the right person, and, and if you're really lucky, they can cover two areas. Because even if you don't need them to cover two areas, they can at least talk to that other person. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. It building a team is hard. They get a pass if they read your book? No, although they do get different interview questions. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Every chapter in the book uh, has an, instead of a, did you understand this material, there's an interview question, but it isn't what, 
it isn't like I'm asking you, how do you do string copy? Instead, the interview question is the other side of the table. Nobody ever taught me to interview people. I just had to learn through huge amounts of pressure and time and horror. Mm-hmm. And so this is all, yeah. why would you ask string copy? And what would you look for in an answer? And what is the important part of what the person's doing? And what are the parts you really should ignore? Because that's probably just nerves. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a good episode of your podcast. Uh, I don't think you guys had a guest, did you, for that one? If we did, it was Jen Castillo. She's on the show fairly often. Yeah, yeah, that was a good episode. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> and Alicia, now that we've mentioned the book, what is the name of your book? My book is Making Embedded Systems. It was written for O'Reilly, so I have an animal on the cover, which I guess is probably only important to software engineers. That's sort of a... <laughs> Neat thing. Um, and, you know, we talked earlier on the show about electrical engineers and software engineers or CS majors and double E majors and yeah. only knowing half their job. My goal was actually with the book for you to know half the book already um, and to just cantilever that knowledge into the other half that you probably are making up as you go along. Yeah. All right. Well, and, and as you mentioned, it has, uh, is it is it the end of every chapter? It has the interview question? Yeah, there are 10 chapters and 10 interview questions. Very cool. And and every once in a while, somebody will admit to reading my book. And <laughs> once I did go on an interview uh, myself at another company, and they Googled me before I showed up, or maybe they read my resume, and they realized they had the book in the office, and then they couldn't ask me anything. They, they, they got so, like, is she going to judge us on our questions? <laughs> Pull out your pad and you know, just start grading them. <laughs> no, it's, they were really afraid of that. They, That's um, awesome. They, they were really shy about it. It was pretty hilarious. And I ended up, you know, sort of, I did a little lecture on the difference between I squared C and SPY. And it, it ended up being far more me being a professor sort of thing. It was very strange. Right. Did they start ask you, asking you questions in the interview? It was very clear they were struggling with that and they were just trying to get free consulting. Um, they didn't know. But other people do, yes. <laughs> but I don't mind. I mean, as a consultant, yeah. you pretty much get the first hour for free. <laughs> and partially, I mean, not only because I don't value my time, I, I do value my time, but I want to know how well I work with you. And that first hour of back and forth is mm-hmm. incredibly valuable for me to decide not to take a contract. <laughs> well, I got this toaster that's going to revolutionize <laughs> everything. <laughs> I, you know, the toaster, if you th- have you heard of Eggbot from the Evil Mad Scientist folks? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally picturing a toaster crossed with Eggbot that you could like draw on. You know, the Eggbot draws little pictures on eggs. And I, mm-hmm. I think you could do toaster egg bot. That could work. I'm pretty sure I've seen that project on Make. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure somebody. I mean, it was probably an erector set kind of setup, but where it could burn, like okay, toast, comma burn pictures in a toast. Yeah, I wonder if there's a 3D printer that will print toast for you. As everyone Googles. (laughs) (laughs) 
Alicia, you mentioned uh, your consulting business, and we really didn't mention that you've had your own uh, consulting firm for, is it about 10 years now? Yeah, 10 or 12. Okay. Um, I actually left for a little while to work at ShotSpotter. That was full-time, and then I came back. But my husband and business partner has kind of held it down in the meantime. Terrific. And and so during the process of of getting this uh, consulting business up and going and being successful, uh, are there any you know valuable lessons you've learned other than being willing to spend an hour with potential clients? Uh, the the advice I got when I asked that question, which proved to be correct, was that you you worry about all the things. Um, you know, you're pretty confident you can do the engineering, but you worry about marketing and all of that other stuff and networking stuff that engineers are not necessarily excited about doing but the hardest part and the most important part of running your own consulting business is accounts receivable right uh actually getting paid it shouldn't be a fight but sometimes it is and if that's going to be a problem then that's sort of the cutoff of maybe this isn't the right path for you yep on the other hand, I do like it. I love the flexibility. I used to be one of those people who worked all the time. But now if I want to go for a walk at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I just clock out and I go for a walk and there's no guilt at all. <laughs> oh, that would be nice sometimes. I always felt guilty leaving during the work day and I always got there at like 8 and then I would leave at like 6 and feel guilty even though people would come in at like 10 and not and leave at 7 but I always felt like I was the first one leaving and it was hmm. ridiculous I don't have it quite that bad but I do wish we had some sunny day clauses where I could just like turn in a little card and it's like yeah it's too nice to work today we do that in the summer <laughs> we, we build in to our schedules some time to go to the beach <sighs> yeah it's uh, that is yeah it's awesome <laughs> that would be nice <laughs> isn't that what vacation days are for I'm sick of work isn't that what you know, you play that card. True, true. I'm in that. I'm in that wedding period yeah. there where everybody I know is getting married. So, kind of got my vacation time <laughs> all spoken for. But yeah, I'm not complaining. I have a blast. I just sometimes want to like get to work, see that it's super sunny, and then leave work. Sometimes you can negotiate unpaid days off. I had a friend who used to negotiate a whole month every year unpaid off. And I'm still sort of jealous because I don't take that much time off. <laughs> I'll remember that when my student loans get paid off. <laughs> yeah. Alicia, we should uh, we should probably think about wrapping this up and letting you go. Uh, before we do, uh, you mentioned earlier your podcast. Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about your podcast and where interested listeners might come to find it? You can find our podcast. Uh, it's called Embedded.fm. And if you go to URL bar in any browser, embedded.fm will get you there. Uh, on iTunes, you can search embedded and you'll probably get it. Mm-hmm. And Stitcher, all the normal sites. Uh, it is me talking to someone, usually. Um, we like to talk to engineers about what they're working on, what they're excited about, entrepreneurs about starting a company. Uh, we've had shows about keywords in C, so we do occasionally get deeply technical, but Mm -hmm. we've also had shows about what exactly is Etsy and how do I do craft electronics on it. 
So it okay. goes both ways. Um, I, my husband is also on sometimes. He's my co-host. He doesn't usually talk, but he's producer. And now that he has a mic, he spends a little more time reminding me that not everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Which is really good for when I when I have guests who are good friends. We'll just go yeah. off into our own little language. It's bad, right? So, yeah, we're uh, we're talking to Sophie Kravitz in a couple weeks, and um, the thing M he makes the I squared C LEDs is going to be on this week. And last week was Chris Savage from Parallel or Parallax, and we've had the CNC desktop other mill people on it's it's fun i get to talk to people about yeah. what they're excited about yeah i i tune in quite often and it's, it's good stuff good. thank you very entertaining yeah as do i and you know there's uh if you're interested in topics relating to high quality embedded systems that episode with jack Gansel. 53 being a grown-up engineer is he yeah is that was just so a easy. fantastic episode I'm going to have to re-listen to that one. <laughs> I remember it, but it is vaguely. That one should be partnered with the one um, with James Grenning on test-driven development because he wrote that book and talked about how important that was. And it, yeah, that's all sort of a theme of how do you not put together crappy Lego blocks things and call it shippable? How do you do it <laughs> right? I'm, st I'm still trying to find Michael Barr's uh, uh, lecture uh, about the Toyota acceleration fiasco, yeah. uh, which I think was discussed on that show. Toyota should know better. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and, and wrap this up this evening. Uh, Alicia, if... If someone has an interest in embedded systems, they think that they want to become an embedded system programmer, what's your advice? Do they go the CS route, they go the double E route, or they uh, some other route? Whichever route they like better, but join the robotics club. Okay. That, that's the big one. Okay. Get a little hands-on and figure out how things really work. Yeah, because it, if you start... EE and you join robotics and you realize you really like CS and you're still a sophomore, you probably can jump ship. Right. Or if you like Mackie better too. Yeah. And the whole mechatronics, You had, your guest last week was talking about how she's a mechanical uh, professor, but she has a double E background. It, it's all kind of merging together. Right. Well, that that's how I, I became a mechanical engineer. And when I was an undergrad, I was enrolled in what they called at the time interdisciplinary engineering. I believe it's still an ongoing program if you want to sort of customize your program. And I was taking as much mechanical as I could and as much electrical as I could. Uh, there was really – I didn't know there was a name, Mechatronics, at that point in time. And about uh, the end of my sophomore year, I was interviewing for co-op jobs and summer internships. And every interview I went into, they would ask, what kind of engineers, you know, are you? What are you studying? And I would say, well, it's interdisciplinary engineering. And I would spend the next 15 minutes trying to explain to them what interdisciplinary engineering was. And then they would say, well, that's nice, but our time is up. Uh, bye. <laughs> and uh, at that point, I went over to the School of Electrical Engineering and I said, how many hours will it take me to become transferred into the, to the double E program? And they said, 21 hours. I said, hmm. And I went over to the Mechanical Engineering School and I said, how many hours to transfer over? 
And they said, three. <laughs> and I said, aha, I am a mechanical engineer. <laughs> Well, the school I went to only graduated engineers. There was no qualifier. That was one of the reasons hmm. I did my own thing was because I, I didn't really want to take fluid mechanics. <laughs> right. But because it was just a standard engineering degree, you had to take all of these other things. Yeah. I think right. you made the right decision instead of, I spend some time trying to discuss what it is I majored in. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, Alicia, we know that uh, they can they can go find your book. They can go to embedded.fm and uh, find your podcast. If they want to contact you, where do we send them? There's a contact link on embedded.fm. Uh, okay. And I am on Twitter as Logical Elegance. And that's, those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you and I like listening to your show. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm happy to have you as a listener. Thanks for uh, plugging one of the holes we had with no software engineers on here. You do need a software engineer. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> probably two from what we've learned today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, have a wonderful evening. You too. Good night. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.